When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at Bethel in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to John Treconing about his new book, Infectious Pathogens and How We Fight Them. COVID-19 might be the only, uh, only the first of many modern pandemics. The subject of infection and how to fight it grows more urgent every day. How do pathogens cause disease? And what tools can we give our bodies to do battle? Dr. John Dragoning has dedicated his career to answering these questions. Infectious uncovers fascinating success stories in immunology and virology, making this book not only a vital overview of infection, but also a hopeful story of ongoing human ingenuity. Well, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of recent global pandemic, I was wondering if we could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. So I'm a researcher in respiratory infections. I'm based at Imperial College in London. And I guess there have been a number of different kind of areas where it's affected me. So first of all, um, actually, my research lab was closed down in March 2020 because of the lockdowns associated with the pandemic. And from a kind of personal level, I was then um, working from home and trying to homeschool. And that's when I sort of started writing the book. But then I was, uh, then we sort of about May 2020, we did start going back into the lab and started working on or around kind of um, vaccines for respiratory infections and kind of and a link to that. So uh, it had kind of a, a big sort of personal impact in terms of kind of how we did the work at the time. Um, and then, sorry, can you say the second part of the question again? Um, so maybe some main takeaways uh, that you have gathered from uh, what's been happening. 
Yeah, so thinking about um, some takeaways from the pandemic and what's happened so far is one of the big things is that we do have the technologies to be able to deal with uh, certainly this pandemic uh, infection. So we the va- vaccine was developed within 100 days of the sequence first um, being isolated and, and put out to the public. So there was a very kind of fast turnaround. And that, but these technologies haven't come from nowhere. They've actually come from uh, a long background of historical development. So it's sort of the 20th year of a 20 year program, both for the RNA vaccines and for the adenovirus vaccines. So, yes, we have the tools to deal with some of these problems, but also they build on past research. So that's the first one. The second one is that the, there needs to be better equity in how drugs and vaccines are made available. And maybe if we can't rely on the sort of generosity of the rich nations, then we need to spread the infrastructure and the ability to manufacture vaccines more uh, dispersed more globally so everyone can have a, the fair access to the vaccines as they get them. And then finally is the, I guess, the kind of um, huge impact that uh, locking down society can have on the transmission of infectious diseases. So this is the sort of first time that very large lockdowns have been used. And we can see not only did SARS-CoV numbers uh, go right down at the same time, but all, all, all infections went right, right down at the same time. So you can break chains of transmission that way. So you already mentioned that you're a researcher. So can you tell us more about yourself? How did you get started, Ed? Yes, yeah, so, um, so I've been working at Imperial College for about 20 years. I did a PhD working on looking at making transgenic vaccines or, or edible vaccines, actually. So what my PhD was, was to uh, transform the chloroplast genetics. So these are the kind of, so basically what we're interested in was trying to make different ways of manufacturing vaccines. So lots of vaccines kind of are made in lots of different ways, but what we're interested in is could you harness the power of plants to make better vaccines? And we were able to demonstrate that you could make these vaccines and actually that the vaccines were then uh, protective against infection. So this was a kind of a a small piece in a, a, a long program of work, which I, I stepped back from the kind of plant vaccine side of things, but actually in the last year, plant vaccines have been demonstrated to be protective against influenza. So it was kind of that first kind of steps that we made during my PhD were part of a kind of long string of events that have led to a clinical product. So I did my PhD, I kind of, and then I sort of fell in love with the immune system and understanding how uh, our bodies fight off infectious diseases. And so um, I started studying uh, respiratory infections. And in particular, I was studying a virus called respiratory syncytial virus. And respiratory syncytial virus is a very interesting virus. It's one that lots and lots of small children get. So within the first year of life, in a normal year, most children will get infected with this virus called RSV. And of those children, a small number, and this includes my son, will actually get quite sick. So, so when my son was six months old, he actually had to go to hospital because he got uh, a bronchiolitis associated with um, RSV. And it was that kind of moment that made me realize that what I was doing wasn't just a kind of uh, idea in the lab, but actually had, a, had big real world impacts and it kind of linked the two together in a very stark way. 
And then from there, I uh, stayed at Imperial and I developed a research group with a team of uh, scientists who work with me. And we are interested in a whole range of different ways to prevent respiratory infections. And what roles uh, did your mentors play along your career journey? So I've been incredibly lucky to have uh, very, very supportive mentors. Not, And I think there's, you kind of, I, I sort of think about mentors in two ways. There's the sort of direct line managers. So I had um, a very sort of inspirational uh, mentors in terms of my PhD supervisors, uh, Professor Gordon Dugan, Professor Peter Nixon, who kind of set me off on the path of uh, PhD science. And actually before that, I had, was um, as an undergraduate, I was working in a lab in Cambridge on something completely unrelated, fruit fly genetics. And one day I was looking down the microscope and uh, the lab supervisor at the time, Professor Stephen Russell, he, he pointed out that the thing that we were looking at, nobody else had ever seen before. And it was that kind of sort of uh, eye-opening moment that science can sometimes bring that you kind of look and you see something that nobody's ever done before. And that's kind of stayed with me ever since. So they, they, my undergraduate and my postgraduate supervisors kind of put me on the path to be to learn and be interested in science. And then my postdoctoral supervisor, Professor Peter Openshaw, gave me the space to kind of develop my own ideas, to uh, work independently on a number of different projects and sort of build that, that sort of skill set. And then finally, I've been very well supported by my current uh, line manager and my uh, head of department. So my line manager is Professor Robin Shattuck and my head of department is Wendy Barclay. And both of them are leaders in their field, but also give, have the time or spare the time to kind of talk through my grant ideas and help me kind of um, hone those down. So that's the sort of scientific mentoring. But actually, there's also lots of kind of other mental people that you um just who will spare a half an hour to chat through ideas. So that can be peer mentors, so people who are who are also PIs and we can chat ideas together, or, or friends or people like outside of my field. So there's lots of people that I get ideas and support from. And what really excites you in academic research? And maybe you have some advice for our young career, early career researchers and younger listeners. I really like the sort of problem solving nature of it i i love you know you, you you have a you you have you make an observation and then you think well why is that happening what what is it about what we've just done that that explains what's going on and it's that kind of building building a problem uh, you know picking apart one step by one step so we had a we have a one of my uh, former phd students was looking at a link between viral infection in the lungs and then changes in the gut microbiome and you might think the two things are quite separate but actually she was able to piece this kind of puzzle apart and show that viral infection led the mice to change their dietary intake and changing the dietary intake then led to the changes in the gut microbiome so it's that kind of building puzzles uh, step by step in terms of advice to um earlier career researchers i think i would i've done lots and lots of different things lots of kind of different areas and i think i would say be curious be interested in lots of things and also be collaborative work with as many people as you can because you'll get new ideas and new approaches and also work on interesting stories so your latest book is infectious pathogens and how we fight them which is a quite a beautiful example of science communication um, i should say so how did you come to writing it so uh, as I said at the beginning, my in March 2020, my lab 
came my lab shut and we all kind of went home and that gave me a bit more time well not time but sort of a different type of time to the usual sort of going to the lab thinking about grants writing grants writing papers but the seed was actually sown a bit earlier than that so in November 2019 so six months before the sort of uh, the lockdowns I met with a literary agent called Caroline Hardman and we talked about ideas about a book and she suggested writing this book to kind of explain vaccines and antibiotics and why we should use them and where they came from and at the time in November 19 I didn't really have sort of the time or the headspace to really think about it but then well, for six months, I actually then did have a bit more time uh, spare or, or different type of time spare um, because I was homeschooling as well at the same time. But there were sort of different gaps and it, and it made me realise that maybe this was a, an interesting idea to do. And also, actually, the other thing that triggered it was speaking to friends outside science who had lots and lots of questions about how does the immune system work? How does cells work? How do viruses work? And I realised that all of the things that I'd been learning over 20 years would actually be maybe of interest to other people as well. So I, I, I thought I'd try and communicate them and share those ideas so people could understand better what was going on around. All right. So let's delve into some of the science that you cover in your book. So what is a pathogen? So a pathogen is really any microorganism that can infect get in so anything that's really small that can get into your body and cause disease and what kind of pathogens are there are they all equal oh uh, depends <laughs> so there are lots of different types of pathogens uh so that you can have bacterial pathogens and viral pathogens but you can also have ones with infections caused by funguses or or bigger more complicated things called eukaryotic parasites um, are they all equal? It depends who you talk to. I tend to study viral pathogens, so I'm more interested in them. But if you speak to a bacteriologist, they'd say no bacteria are the most important. So I think there's probably a bit of bias in terms of uh, what you work on and how interesting you find them. Is it really clear cut what exactly is a pathogen? Can it be a pathogen in one species and non-pathogen in other species? Yes, absolutely. So uh, there are things that will infect humans that don't infect other species or there are things that infect say a cat and don't infect humans so you can't get a uh, feline immunodeficiency virus it doesn't jump species species so there are species barriers but there are also kind of temporal and spatial barriers so there are some bacteria that you have on your skin an example of that would be staphylococcus aureus which can live on your skin and when it's on your skin, it doesn't cause any disease. But if you cut your skin or if you, say, put a, a needle in, if, you're try, if, if somebody's trying to put a, a line in to get some fluids into you, if that then introduces the bacteria into your bloodstream, the bacteria can then cause dangerous infections. So the, 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 there are species barriers, but also kind of space and time barriers that, that, that mean things go from being non-pathogenic to pathogenic. Is this also the case with bacteri bacteriophages? Uh, so no, bacteriophage cannot infect humans. They, they'll infect bacteria, but their very kind of tight niche would be into bacteria. So there's no bacteriophage that could infect human cells. So in one way, you can use bacteriophage to fight bacterial infections in humans, can you? That's the, it has been proposed and it has been used a few times. Uh, it was certainly used in the sort of 1920s and 30s before the antibiotic kind of the sort of more simple drug antibiotics came in 
the challenge is that bacteria have been living with viruses for as long as there have been bacteria and viruses. And so lots of the bacteria have evolved mechanisms to defend themselves against bacteriophage. So, so just as we have issues with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, you may get phage-resistant bacteria, so that which would then kind of pro, uh, stop the action of the phage, stop it being as useful as a treatment. All of these relationships, they're just so complex, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So we, I mean, most bacteria, most viruses have no, um, interest isn't quite the right word, but they are living independently of humanity and they're just doing their thing. And then we we sort of happen upon them through some sort of blunder upon them. And sometimes they may end up infecting us. So what are the ways to spot pathogens? Um, so I think it needs to, probably it was defined by Robert Koch in the uh, 19th century of what a pathogen is. And he had these postulates, which were these kind of rules by which um, pathogens can you sort of define a pathogen it was an, or a disease causing agent. The first was that you had to be able to isolate it from somebody who was who was infected. And then if you took the agent and you passed it on to another person, you could infect them with the same thing. And then you have to be able to recover it from that second infected person. So so those are kind of rules of what defines a pathogen. And um, the, so, oh, sorry, I've lost the thread. What was it? Sorry, just remind me of the question again. So spotting the pathogen, is it all the same for all of them? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so the, the sort of rules, the sort of way that pathogens spread, the sort of underlying principles are defined by Koch and Koch's postulates. But how you spot the pathogens is you kind of need diagnostic tools. And some diagnostic tools are you can diagnose it by the way the person is. So if, if you get infected and you get a fever, then that's one way of diagnosing that somebody has been infected, but it doesn't tell you with what. You actually need other tools, things like Either, either recovering and growing the organism that's in them or some of the more modern tools that we're seeing now like the lateral flow tests or the PCR which are able to take bits of the um, pathogen and amplify it and show you that you are infected with them. Was this the way that SARS-CoV-2 was spotted using cock postulates or, or not? Um, up to a point. So SARS-CoV-2 was, so what happened was there were patients in uh, Wuhan who had an unusual pneumonia and they uh, were isolated and then samples were recovered from these patients and they didn't, they they were run on an array of different tests with the genetic information of the virus that was in them was run against a, a, a whole batch of different tests and it didn't look like any virus that had been previously identified. And that in general, but it had some overlaps with other coronaviruses. And then from there, they were able to amplify the whole, uh, so basically recover all of the viral uh, genetic material and uh, sequence it. So read what read what was in that genetic material and show that it was a, a novel virus. At the same time, they were able to grow some viruses recovered from the infected people on in cell culture. So grow them in, in a, basically in a glass jar and show that viruses could be recovered from that. So they were able to show that this agent was consistently in other people. The kind of proof that it was infectious was then actually taken from uh, humans and then into animal models. So it's that there's a kind of moving at that because obviously they, they didn't want to infect other people, but you can see that you recover the same virus from, the, from people with the same symptoms. 
So you mentioned PCR technology. Can you describe a little bit more in detail? What does uh, how how does it go? So PCR is called is uh, stands for polymerase chain reaction, and what it does at, at the basic level is amplify a specific bit of DNA. So uh, DNA is the genetic material that kind of enco- which use we use kind of encodes and tells our cells what proteins to make. And what PCR does is you can make it so it finds a very small bit of that DNA and makes more and more copies of it. And and each round you run the PCR reaction, it makes twice as many copies. So you start with, say, one piece of DNA in your sample, and then it doubles up to two, and then up to four, eight, etc. And you can make enough that um, you can eventually see the DNA if you use various different kind of um, visualization techniques. So... That's how PCR works. The PCR that's used in these uh, the viral testing is slightly different because viruses use a different type of genetic material. So where our human cells use DNA to encode their genetic information, viruses use a different molecule, which is related, called RNA. And the RNA, in order to go into a PCR reaction, needs to be turned from RNA into DNA. And we can steal some tools from other viruses, which... which help us kind of synthesize this RNA into DNA and then the DNA can go into the PCR uh, reaction and then you you make lots and lots of copies of the the, the um, DNA that you're interested in and if if there is that DNA there eventually you'll be able to see that the, the reactions happened and that you can measure the DNA. So is PCR uh, still a gold standard for detection of DNA and RNA based viruses? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think because it's um, quick, uh, relatively quick, um, you're sort of you don't have to be able to culture the virus. You can do it, uh, and you can. It's sort of a flexible platform. So, the the approach used to measure the uh, identify SARS RNA could actually be moved to identify influenza RNA if there's an outbreak of that. You just change some of the ingredients in the reaction and you make it instead of making it specific for SARS genes, you make it specific for flu genes. So it's it's a it's a very effective way of measuring it. Okay, so let's say that we spotted our pathogen already. So then we need to find them. So can you give us a few examples of how we can find them? Let's start with externally, so not getting infected, for example. Yeah, so the simplest way, the simplest way of controlling infection is, like you say, not getting infected in the first place, and so mm. that requires um, either isolating people who are infected. So some viruses um, only spread after you're, um, so only spread after you're symptomatic. So the original SARS virus, SARS-CoV one, made people very sick before it spread. So you could identify the people who are sick, you could put them into high containment units in hospitals. And then they wouldn't infect other people. Um, unfortunately for SARS-CoV-2, people can get infected without being symptomatic. So there may be people in the environment who are producing the virus and infecting other people, but they themselves aren't infected. So isolation is one method. And isolation based on diagnostic tests has been quite effective because that way, if you do routine testing, and either with PCR or the lateral flow, you're able to pick up people who are producing virus potentially before they shed it or spread it to other people. So um, sort of the simplest way is kind of identify and isolate. This, the other way, though, is more kind of general. You could just use simple hygiene method, measures like hand washing. So washing your hands prevents 
if you have virus on your hands and then you touch something else and then somebody else accidentally comes along and touches the same surface, they may pick up your virus from there. So washing your hands can stop the spread of viruses as well. And if we get infected, what kind of defense can our immune system mount? So the immune system works on sort of two levels. The first is that it has a a, a wave of defense called innate immunity. And these are white blood cells that recognize that an infection has happened. And some of the cells included are things like um, neutrophils and macrophages. And these move to where the infection has happened and eat up the virus or the bacteria. But actually, you need more specific protect or specific response to kill the infection completely. And so we have a second wave of the immune system called the adaptive immune system. And this is one that can recognize not just that you're infected, but actually that specifically you're infected with SARS-CoV-2 or any or flu or a bacteria. And, and it, it will train, it gets trained to recognize a very tiny bit of that virus and only kill cells that are infected with that specific virus. So that gives you this kind of very focused, trained um, immune response. And that adaptive immune system is then the kind of basis of how vaccines work, because by training it to recognize specific bits of the virus, then if you get reinfected, those cells are already there and ready to attack the virus the next time around. So when you get infected, why are the symptoms so variable between people? Like with SARS-CoV-2, we have seen that uh, some of the symptoms are present in one person, but other symptoms are present in another. So there's at least three very broad variables that that affect how you respond to an infection. The first is actually quite simple, which is dose. So if you get a small amount of virus, it might be, uh, you'll probably get, you will get less sick. So if you get a small uh, nose full of virus, it might be that the immune system in your nose can contain it and clear it and you never really get sick. Whereas if you get if you breathe in loads and loads and loads of virus, it might swamp the initial innate immune system and then sort of set off all kinds of infections all over your lungs. So the first thing is dose. The second thing is your genetics. So people will have different genes in the immune response, and some of those make you better at fighting off viral infections, and some of those are going to make it worse at fighting viral infections. And some during the last 18 months, some big genetic studies have identified that if you if people with genes that affect the way they see viruses, or not they themselves, but the way their immune system sees viruses, makes them much more susceptible to SARS infection. So if, if you're kind of defective in your, uh, if your genes don't do very well at, at identifying that a virus has infected cells, then you're more likely to get sick afterwards. So there's dose times gene, but then there's kind of environment. And environment in this case means what you have going into the infection. So if you have been a long-term smoker, you've done damages to your lungs, and then adding a virus on top of that, which does more damage, is going to make you more susceptible to severe disease. So there's, so those are the kind of three factors that will then lead to the outcome of an infection. Okay, so if our immune system needs some help with fighting the pathogen, we can resort to vaccines and antivirals as well. So can you firstly describe how vaccines work? Yeah, so vaccines 
are something that prevent infection. So they're kind of like a wearing a car seatbelt. They, if you do have a crash, they stop it being very stop it being as severe. And so what vaccines do is they train the immune system to recognize the pathogen that you, that you're infected with and fight it off before it ever becomes a severe infection. And they work through a couple of mechanisms. They work by speaking to your, uh, yeah, the adaptive immune system, but particularly they speak to the B cells in your adaptive immune system. And these cells are ones that make a molecule called antibodies. And antibodies are a kind of a protein that can bind to viruses and stop them being able to get into human cells. So that's how vaccines work at a immunological method. Uh, level there is one other way that vaccines work and that's because they stop spread from one person to the next person so if i've had a vaccine i'm less likely to get sick but actually if i haven't had a vaccine but everyone around me has has had a vaccine and i get sick it doesn't matter Uh, it doesn't spread as far because everyone else is protected against it so you can drive this thing called herd immunity that limits the spread of viruses within communities Okay, so these are the active vaccines, is that correct? Uh, yes. And uh, the passive ones would be just infusing the antibodies? Yes, so there is a way that maybe if somebody has been infected, you could take the those antibodies, these the proteins that are recognizing the virus, and if you put enough of them into somebody's body, you might be able to fight, help them fight off the virus at the time. And it It, it depends a bit on how the virus spreads and how the disease is caused, but you can get passive protection or you can. This is often used when people are, are immunocompromised or unable to make their own protection. So if you could give them a kind of a, a dose of um, antibodies, it may it gives them broader protection against other infections. Aha, gotcha. So. We have seen this rise of new technology uh, for vaccine for vaccines, the mRNA-based ones. Can you describe how they're made and why are they so different? So the whole aim of vaccination is to expose the body to a small, harmless fragment of the virus or that you're trying to prevent or the pathogen you're trying to prevent and train it without it ever without you ever getting sick in the first place. And lots of the vaccines, the sort of historic vaccines, were doing this by either taking a whole virus and then killing, smashing up into little bits so it's killed, but you still see the proteins that make up the viruses, or using a kind of a live but weak version of the virus. And so what's different with RNA vaccines is it's a, it's a question of how they're manufactured. And to understand that, you need to go a little bit back to thinking about how cells make, how our cells make proteins. So I was talking earlier about how the cells contain a uh, sort of a code book for the rest for the proteins they manufacture in in a molecule called DNA. That DNA is like the lending library of the cell, and it it informs the protein machinery within the cell called the ribosomes to how to make their proteins. But the DNA doesn't directly go into the protein machines. There's a, a molecule in between called RNA. So the RNA molecule is like a, a messenger. It, it's like taking a book out of the library and then going to a factory and saying, I want this made. And so what RNA vaccines do is they mimic that, that step. We inject the coding material into some cells and the cells then manufacture the proteins that we're interested in, the bits of the virus, and then that trains your immune response. So RNA vaccines differ to uh, maybe older vaccine technologies just in terms of how they make the 
protein that your body sees to fight off the immune, uh, fight off the virus. And then uh, this mRNA just cleared out uh, of the cells, is it? Yes, yeah, so mRNA. Your cells are making mRNA all the time. Uh, it's quite a high turnover molecule. Your your cells contain uh, enzymes called ribonucleases, which chew up the RNA. Uh, the stuff that your cells makes, the stuff that's been injected, and it, it's all got rid of and processed and will, will clear probably within 48 hours. So infectious diseases have been quite a bit of a challenge uh, in our world. So can you give us some of your favorite examples of success in fighting some of them? I think one of the stories that really inspired me to write the book is, is the story of the control of HIV. So if we go back 30 years to 1991, the lead singer of Queen, Freddie Mercury, uh, died of a disease associated with HIV so it called AIDS, which is where the immune HIV virus infects the immune system, um, kills the cells of the immune system, and then basically leaves you susceptible to other infections. And at the time, the HIV virus was an untreatable virus. People who got it were going to die. And there's this kind of, uh, it was considered almost a death sentence. And but within 15 years of that, of, of 1991, we had uh, drugs that can not only, which basically can prevent the spread of the virus between different people, but also once people are infected, could, turns it into a chronic and manageable condition. So within my lifetime, we've gone from a killer virus that killed everyone who got it into a manageable condition in people who have access to the drugs. And thinking about uh, pathogens of uh, different different kind of pathogens, so for example, malaria, how is it caused, and why is it such a challenge to address? So malaria is a uh, it's called a it's a eukaryotic parasite. So the there's sort of ways of dividing up uh, living things into different kind of uh, categories, and humans sit in this big family called eukaryotes and so does the malaria parasite and so the parasite that infects you is carried in mosquitoes so what happens is a mosquito will have bitten somebody else who's malaria infected they'll have taken some blood from the other person the malaria then grows within the mosquito and then when the mosquito comes to bite the next person to get some more sort of get some more blood they deposit the malaria parasite in the new person. And it's that kind of, that's what leads to the infection. And then the malaria parasite gets into your bloodstream and actually has a number of different life cycles within that. So it, get, it can get into your liver, but can also live in your red blood cells. And it's the malaria that lives in your red blood cells that causes the anemia and the tiredness that are associated with malaria. And uh, the reason why it's so tricky to fight malaria is firstly because it's it because it's a similar kind of organism, a eukaryote to humans. You're actually trying to you the treatment options are much uh, fewer and farther between because there are less t- proteins that are unique to the malaria. So, drug antiviral drugs and antibacterial drugs work because you can target a unique part of the virus that humans don't have. So you can basically say this is viral. If we stop that working, we can kill the virus without killing the human cells. And malaria, there are fewer things that the malaria has that humans don't have. So there's fewer things to target. This, in terms of kind of making a vaccine, malaria is also complicated because it has lots of different kind of forms. It changes and it hides from the immune system. So there, it, there are a number of challenges in treating and controlling. 
And then thinking of bacterial pathogens, can you describe what uh, what are antibiotics and what is antibiotic resistance? Yeah, so antibiotics are a broad class of drugs that prevent, or sorry, wrong, that treat bacterial infections. So uh, say you've got a streptococcus pneumoniae infection, you could take a course of penicillin, which is an antibiotic, and that would kill the bacterial cells and that then helps you get better. Um, The problem is uh, the drugs that we have there are now bacteria that are resistant to them. So antimicrobial resistance is where the bacteria that are infecting people are no longer responding and being killed by the drugs that we use to to kill the bacteria. And that's a, a very big challenge because if we don't have working antibiotics, there's lots of things that we can't do. A lot of um, surgery depends on antibiotics. So do transplants or chemotherapy. So there are other treatments that require antibiotics to keep people safe from the bacteria while their immune system isn't working so well. And what kind of solutions can be uh, taken to prevent the rising of this bacterial uh, antibiotic bacterial resistance? So the simplest thing is to use less antibiotics. So basically the, the very high frequency of use of antibiotics has produced like a, an immune pressure, an evolutionary, not immune pressure, an evolutionary pressure. So bacteria that can resist the antibiotics are going to do better than bacteria that can't. And so if we take that away, that if we remove that evolutionary pressure, if we basically have, use less antibiotics, then um, the, the balance between resistant and susceptible strains actually changes back again. So this, that's the simplest thing. The second thing is, is to come back to vaccines. Um, vaccines against bacteria can prevent antimicrobial resistance emerging because if people don't get infected in the first place, then you don't need to use the antibiotics to treat them. And the final part then is to actually to go back and start developing and looking for new antibiotics. There were lots of antibiotics discovered in the 50s and the 60s, but the pipelines dried up a bit. And actually, we need to go back and kind of start looking again for different antimicrobial compounds. So now thinking about the big picture, firstly, what roles do vaccines play in our fight against pathogens? So vaccines, to uh, to me, are the most important tool we have against infectious diseases. I think it probably is fair to say that clean water is the most important, the the most effective way of preventing infectious diseases. So if people have access to clean water, they're much less likely to get infected in the first place. But then on top of that, vaccines have driven an enormous increase in uh, life expectancy, going from 50 it, like most people live to about 50 in the early 1900s and now people are living to 70 and 80 and, and much of that increase in life expectancy is driven by vaccines and what are implications of studying um, pathogens especially very virulent ones for example once uh, as uh, uh, some viruses are for our wider society by understanding how pathogens spread um, and how they infect people and how we can stop them, we can stop the, the, the infections taking place in the first place. So if, if by preventing infections, does it, a, a good example is in parasite infections. So people who have, say, a, a worm infection tend to have uh, poorer outcomes um, economically because 
they miss days of school or they don't uh the the food they eat doesn't go as much to treat uh, to making them grow as to the parasite as well so if we can prevent these parasites from infecting people you you see a, a big increase in economic output in terms of kind of quality of life of people so studying pathogens and understanding how to treat them leads directly to people having a better quality of life and what do you want to see in the near future to increase our odds of winning fights against new epidemics so i think the most pressing thing is to replenish the antibiotic arsenal so to get more and better antibiotics to have better ways of using them uh, intelligently so so we don't lose this kind of vital um, piece of kit that we have to use to prevent bacterial infections. I think that's the first thing. The second is then to build upon the um, speed and development of vaccines that we've seen in the last 18 months and, and look to, to spread that and disperse that so every country has the ability to make its own vaccines in the case of a pandemic. And what kind of discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Infectious, surprised you the most? Oh, I think it was the, uh, so I'm not sure surprised, but uh, the thing that was newest to me was the lots and lots of interesting different characters that don't always get talked about. People kind of talk about Fleming and Pasteur, but there, were, there are so many uh unmentioned underrepresented important characters in our in in the battle with infectious diseases and and, and learning a bit about their story and be able to share some of the stories of those people was was really fun and have you been in the lab with the highest level of protection uh i no i've never worked in cat three or cat four labs i'm i'm far too clumsy <laughs> and i'm far too worried that i'll do something terrible so no i happily stick at the kind of lower level of infections of things that i know that i'll recover from if i make a mistake and finally as we can see that there's a lot of environmental change uh, going on and we see melting permafrost for example in tundra are you worried that there can be some pathogens in it? And how would we know whether they're infectious to modern uh, organisms? So it's not something I've worried. In terms of kind of global warming, I don't worry, or climate change, I'm not so worried about kind of historic bacteria hidden in, in the frozen ice. What's much more concerning is uh, the, say, with warming you, mosquitoes can live in more different countries and that with mosquitoes you then get things like dengue or malaria spreading to countries where they're not endemic at the moment i think that's a, a major concern in terms of diagnosing new things that emerge as we saw in at, in the last sort of 18 months there the technology and the kind of uh, wherewithal to do that does exist so i think if new things do emerge we will be able to detect them relatively quickly well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? So I'm, I'm back in the lab. Uh, my team are all back in the lab and we're very interested in understanding a bit more about these amazing RNA vaccines. So we're exploring how they interface with the early parts of your immune system, um, how, that, how we can um, change that and or sort of make them more effective. So that's the main project that we're working on. And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Sorry, I'm just about to cough. 
Sorry, could you ask me that one again? <laughs> uh, yep. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? So the best place to find it is on uh, my website, which is johntragoning.com, but also um, my, which covers the book and some of my other bits of writing. Um, alternatively, my Imperial College website has a lot about the actual science research that I do. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this illuminating discussion. Thank you. It's been great.